So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agency believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than... We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Hello and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has played an important role in the Trump administration in recent months. Recently, EPIC's Steve Sakala, an assistant professor at the Harris School of Public Policy, got the chance to sit down with one of the agency's past chairman, John Wellinghoff. They explored the changing business model of electric utilities as distributed generation becomes a more important part of the U.S. energy mix. Let's listen into their conversation. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for coming. It's uh, it's great to have you here today. Uh, there were a, a couple of topics that we wanted to uh, talk about before the the seminar later this evening, and uh, and first was just to talk a bit about your experience at FERC, and to sort of reflect on your experience at FERC in light of what's going on at FERC now. Okay. So uh, we have an administration that has come in saying they want to deconstruct the regulatory state. And in other parts of the federal government, we've seen that pretty successfully. And so I think many people were surprised to find that we had found rock bottom, at least when the NOPR was uh, dismissed by FERC. What what do you think makes FERC um, the the sort of place that has said no? We're going to be continue to be a professional regulatory agency. Well, there are a number of things, and I found that at FERC when I uh, arrived in two thousand six that it was a very collegial agency, and it is a very professional agency from a standpoint of you know really being concerned about ensuring that regulation is done right and that markets are structured in the right way. And it is an economic regulator, uh, or excuse me, a market regulator as opposed to an economic regulator. It doesn't set rates generally, although there are there is some rate setting that goes on at FERC, but generally it's more involved <coughs> with um, approving market rules. But it does so, collegially it does so in a bipartisan manner as well. And it's an independent agency, I think, is one of the most critical aspects of FERC. It is um, an agency that once you are appointed, uh, and that's done through a uh, nomination process by the president and a confirmation process by the Senate, uh, once you take that oath of office, you can only be removed for cause, unlike the EPA administrator or some of the other 
uh, regulatory agencies that are not really independent agencies that uh, a president and his uh, uh, staff uh, have the ability to affect in a much more significant way than they do uh, an independent regulator. So I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's those combination of factors. And the people that I served with at FERC, both Republicans and Democrats, were generally all people who <coughs> had uh, a great deal of grounding in administrative law and a great deal of grounding uh, in the substance of the topics that FERC regulates. And I think that's still the case of the five people that are there today. Uh, generally, they all have a great deal of substance, a substantive knowledge about the issues that FERC is uh, tasked with overseeing. And in addition, uh, they are all fairly well grounded in administrative law and understand uh, the rule of law with respect to a regulatory agency and how it's, how it's to yeah. function. Would you see it as uh, more, less, or, or sort of differently independent than, say, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau? We'd think that when that was set up, we say, okay, here we have something that's truly independent and they can also only fire for cause if, if that's right. Right. Um, um, there, there, there are other aspects um, of FERC that are probably more independent than that particular uh, the consumer uh, agency that you mentioned. FERC's budget uh, is approved by Congress, and I don't believe that OMB has um, direct impact on it in the sense that the money that FERC utilizes for its budget doesn't come from the general fund. It comes from charges on the um, utility systems uh, that FERC oversees. So there's a different uh, tra money trail that could make things a little bit more independent probably than those, those other type agencies as well. Um, so I think overall FERC is more independent plus you know the, the particular consumer agency that you name is a rather new agency and doesn't yeah. have a lot, a lot of track a lot of history, record, a lot of history. For sure. Whereas FERC, you know, is grounded in some very uh, substantial statutes, the Federal Power Act, the Natural Gas Act, and uh, <clears throat> uh, the substantial amendments to those acts over the years that uh, have provided for, you know, historical precedent of an agency that uh, is pretty well established. Were you at all uncertain that uh, it might or might not be upheld, or were you pretty confident <laughs> going in? Well, I was a little concerned as to, you know, uh, who might be nominated and confirmed. Um, and, and as it turned out, I think the, the nominations were all uh, good ones in that they were all individuals who seemed to, again, as I say, have some fairly high level of understanding of the substance of what FERC does. Yep. And, uh, you know, former commissioner, Commissioner Pallison, who was the chairman of the Pennsylvania Commission, and, and Neil Chatterjee, who was a uh, uh, Senate aide on, uh, on energy issues, and um, uh, McIntyre, the chairman, who uh, is, uh, has been a long-term practicing uh, practitioner uh, of FERC 
uh, regulatory issues with with clients before FERC. So you know all all and Glick as well. So all of them ultimately um, you know understand what FERC does, and I think appreciate that that history and tradition. Yeah. Can you say much about how FERC became sort of the the driving force of using markets to determine which power plants are going to operate in the U.S.? Well, you know, that was um, decisions that were made back way back with Betsy Mulder, who was chair, who uh, opened access to the transmission lines ultimately and then was um, – uh, that was taken up further the market issue was taken up by then uh, the chair on the the first chair under uh, under George Bush and that was um, Pat Wood from Texas who actually tried to expand it significantly Betsy actually uh, first helps um, f- formulate and start the the independent system operators that 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 operate these markets and FERC realized quickly that if we were going to have these markets, they had to be independently operated. Uh, but but initially decided them to be more um, associations of transmission owners that were voluntary. And then Pat Wood actually tried to put something in called SMD, Standard Market Design, yeah. that would have made it mandatory that there be markets across the whole United States. And there was this huge railing pushback from a, t- a couple of sectors of the of the uh, U.S., primarily the northeast, northwest, and the southeast. Yep. Those two areas of the country uh, were not about to have uh, independent markets imposed upon them, and so uh, Pat backed off and uh, ultimately made it voluntary to have uh, independent uh, system operators um, uh, following along what what Betsy started out. And then uh, Joe Kelleher after him, and then I followed after Joe Kelleher, uh, you know, continued to um, in ways incent and encourage uh, that there be markets and that market structures uh, be the predominant structure in the U.S. where generators are dispatched via uh, market, market, market signals and economic market signals rather than being dispatched in the in the the way that they had been through uh, um, regional areas of of uh, owners, uh, primarily investor-owned utilities, but in some instances, uh, munis and co-ops. So, sort of at the end of the day, did the NOPR really just cut? into the DNA of, of FERC, of just being completely antithetical to sort of the, the momentum of, of the agency itself and how they sort of think of themselves and their role in the U.S. electricity sector. Well, it would have been a huge reversal. It would have, uh, my quote was, that was predominantly displayed in a lot of trade yep. publications, that it would blow up the markets. And I really did believe that, that it would have blown up the markets. In fact, I submitted comments along with uh, seven other or I think six other uh, uh, former FERC chairs uh, to uh, the FERC about the NOPR, indicating that w- that we believed that it was extremely problematic. And um, and you know, to your question, it did really cut into the DNA, in the sense that what it did is it subsidized. It, it was proposing to subsidize a particular group of um, assets, uh, that being coal-fired and nuclear 
power plants, uh, ones that ha had, a, I think it was a 90-day supply of uh, fuel on, on site, for, for no apparent reason. I mean, there was no there was no there to there, as they say. There was no justification for the um, either reliability or resilience or whatever you want to call it that would have been provided by having those fuel stocks uh, uh, in place uh, that you could assign an economic value to that you should compensate. And there was no evidence in the record, no evidence whatsoever, none in the record, that established that there was some value that should be assigned to that particular characteristic of a, of a plant. And, you know, when I was at FERC, I was very uh, uh, sensitive to and attuned to looking for certain market participants that had certain values that could be um, compensated, that could be uh, quantified and ultimately should be compensated. And one uh, example I like to give is Order 755 that I helped um, champion through FERC when I was there, which was the order for fast response regulation service. So what that order does is it says, look, if you have an asset that can provide regulation service, which is that service of quick response to the grid, of stabilizing it so that it doesn't go out of frequency, uh, typically it's provided by a combustion turbine um, historically, but if you can do it faster than combustion turbine, which means that you can catch the curve, the movement of the curve faster, then you should be able to be compensated for that because it's valuable. It's valuable to do that. And it turns out things like batteries and flywheels and all kinds of other digitally controlled equipment can do it yeah. much faster than a um, combustion turbine. So we put a rule in place, or 755, that told the ISOs that uh, in these markets you need to compensate those kinds of fast response services uh, for the value that they provide. And, and, I, and I think that's a legitimate thing to do, but it, it, it wasn't there for a coal plant or, or nuclear power plant. There was not not the value there. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was something that we thought didn't have any merit. So this is sort of a, a leading question, but that, I'll sort of follow up on it. Uh, when you read it, did you think it was a joke? Kind of. <laughs> I, mean, right, I, like, mean, I mean, like, again... It's like let's let's um, you know throw the dog out the window and see if he flies. I mean, you know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess then the, the real question is sort of what um, what what inference did you draw about the expertise of the people who were coming up with policy ideas based on the contents? of the NOVA. Well, that they didn't have any understanding of how the markets operated or the, or, or, or nor did it seem that they had under, uh, any understanding of sort of basic administrative legal principles that you have to have substantial evidence of record to make a decision. There was no substantial, there was no evidence, let alone substantial evidence, in that record that was submitted over by DOE that would have, in fact, um, supported the position. And so, and in fact, if you read the report, the underlying report that Allison Silverstein did, and I know Allison very well, yeah. it, it was kind of apparent. I mean, Allison understood that because Allison is a very intelligent and and uh, uh, well-known person in the industry who has done this stuff for a long time. And so, it was clear if you read that report that there's nothing, there was nothing there that supported what the ultimate. 
premise was, and that was that these particular assets should be compensated for something. You have any sense going forward of how you anticipate they'll try again? Well, I think they understand now that they've got a FERC that's, you know, only going to act in a, uh, a manner that historically uh, is um, appropriate from an administrative law perspective, number one. Number two, I mean, even if you had a FERC that was willing to just accept anything and put it in place, you fortunately have the courts and the you know the legal system and you know I took a number of cases through the courts including order 745 that went all the way to the US Supreme Court that we won on on demand response on uh, making sure that it could be compensated in the markets at the same level as generators uh, that you know have a great deal of faith in the courts that the courts would would rectify any um, major aberrations that that a a different FERC might uh, want to put in place uh, from the administration pushing, yeah. trying to push it through. Yeah. So for me, for, for FERC, that's been a really striking difference. Of In many other parts of the federal government, they've tried ham-handed things that have gone to the courts and have been laughed out of the courts of saying, of right. course you can't do that. Right, right. Uh, whereas here, it didn't didn't come to the courts, far, yeah. Right, fortunately, um, so so that was uh, that was very a very striking action from from FERC. Um, I I wanted to ask you your view in terms of the direction for wholesale electricity markets. In some areas, they're growing. In other areas, there are pressures to blow them up. Um, how how do you see things developing going forward? Well, the pressures to be, to blow them up have been there. I mean, they're, they're forever from certain quarters, and I don't think that will stop. But the um, trend is certainly for them to expand. And you can look at that trend all the way back to when I was at FERC uh, in 2007 and eight, and then when I became chairman in 2009, um, we had a, a conference in South Carolina of state commissioners who came together and said, you know, there's this utility that's in our states and it is not acting in the way that we think's in the best interests of consumers. That is, it's not allowing lower cost generators to connect to its system and we think it's a travesty. And it turned out that entity was Entergy, uh, was the utility. And so I, as FERC chairman, said, okay, so let's study what the cost would be to have that entity join a independent system operator, in this case MISO is what we were looking at, uh, the Mid-Continental ISO, and what the benefits would be. And I put up $500,000 and we did a study uh, by an independent group, not FERC. We had an independent consulting group that I think the commissioners helped choose, the state commissioners. And so this was a joint effort between uh, four or five state commissions. It was, let's see, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana. Louisiana. And I'm trying to remember who else. Uh, there might, there's, I think at least one more. But in any case, uh, maybe Mississippi. In any case, um, they were all um, supportive. And we got the report back and said, that, yeah, if this entity uh, is, is required by their state commissioners, actually, because FERC, again, doesn't require entities to join um, ISOs, or ISOs and RTOs, um, but the state entities can require their underlying uh, IOUs to do so. 
if, if they, they did, that they could save $700 million over 10 years. It was a tremendous savings. So all the states said, yeah, we're going to do this, and they made them do it. Um, so Entergy is now part of, of the Mid-Continental ISO. And uh, the other thing that I, I helped start um, and is continuing is the push in the West for an expansion of um, the ISO structure uh, throughout the uh, Western Interconnect, WEC, um, uh, under, right now under the California ISO, uh, CAISO, there is California, parts of California, and actually there's a little part of Nevada that's actually in that as well. A lot of people are not aware of that, but Valley Electric is a member. And um, now a number of utilities in the West have contracted with CAISO to have a uh, energy imbalance market. And so it's a sort of an, uh, an ISO or RTO light that allows them to uh, settle for imbalances and uh, at the end of the day and ultimately it saves them a lot of money doing that and people understand that if they take the next step and do a full-fledged um, joining kaiso as a as dispatch a, market a full yeah. dispatch market that they could save even more money and nevada is looking at that right now because nevada actually is in a very unique situation the voters in nevada in 2016 uh, just um, voted to put into their constitution uh, a an amendment to the constitution that would eliminate um, any electric monopolies in the state and require that there be uh, retail access for all consumers. So as part of that, they're looking at well, if we have a retail market in the state, and and that that ballot measure in 2016 because it's a constitutional amendment has to go on the 2018 ballot as well so there has to be another vote which we think it'll pass it passed by 72 percent of the vote in 2016 and i'm working on it actually we think it'll pass in 2018 as well uh, but if that happens it's na it's a natural thing for that retail market to also be part of a wholesale market to have both retail an open retail market and an open wholesale market and and so Nevada's looking at potentially joining the California ISO or other um, structures that would uh, help it have, have full uh, wholesale market products like they're available in California. Yeah. So we've seen uh, one or two power control area balancing authorities, uh, whichever term you prefer, uh, switch from one market to another, but we haven't seen anyone leave. Why, why do you think that is? Because I think because I think there are there are clear cost uh, advantages, clear um, savings and benefits, and they understand by staying in markets. Uh, and there was a lot, yeah. There, there was a lot of of concern about the seams between uh, MISO and PGM yeah. for a period of time. Uh, the seam between PGM and New York. Um, and a lot of that has been settled, or a lot of it has been worked out by FERC, and we did a lot of it when I was there, and I think it's continuing to be worked out. But all of the um, participating transmission owners, and that, that's what an ISO is. An ISO is a, is a voluntary association of transmission owners who are un underlying the footprint of that ISO. Uh, they all see that there are substantial advantages to being in an ISO. One, one, of course, for those transmission owners is, in fact, 
under FERC, they get a higher rate of return on their assets. So that being the case, what are the imped oh, sorry um, that being the case, what are the impediments to um, some of these ISOs sort of joining forces together? New York is separate from New England or PJM. PJM is separate from MISO or Southwest. Well, well nothing but politics and history and tradition. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, I'm sure that, that you know, um, New York feels itself to be very independent from uh, its neighbors. Uh, PGM has a long histor history of its association. Uh, the letters PGM come from Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, uh, ultimately, uh, which forms sort of the core of, of some of the major states that are in PGM. So uh, nothing uh, prevents them from um, uh, sort of expanding and I think ultimately becoming more efficient by doing so other than the uh, sort of institutional inertia internally that would stop one entity from one wanting to become part of another entity. It's like, you know, in, in those things there's always, you know, some fairly petty politics of who's going to lose as to, you know, well, we're going to have, you know, less staff people, so somebody's going to have to go, and there's only going to be one head of this thing, and, you know, there's all, sure. those, all those kind of issues that, you know, uh, are, are and, 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 you know, if I'm in New York and do I want to join with New England, how is that, that going to dilute, dilute my uh, authority over uh, this entity ultimately? Um, California ISO is a very interesting entity in its uh, association with the state, even more so than New York. In California, it's the only ISO, with the exception of Texas, which of course is not part of part of the United States, as we know. Texas is a different; it's its own country. But um, but really, Texas is not under FERC jurisdiction. It's not part of the interstate uh, transmission system and therefore not within FERC's jurisdiction, so therefore the ISO is under the, the PUC. But in California, the governor actually appoints the members of the ISO. They don't in, in New York or any place else. Um, and that's kind of an interesting oddity that's currently somewhat of an impediment to the, the ISO expanding much beyond the boundaries of California. And California legislature is looking at that right now, actually, to try to figure out a way to around that to uh, be more inclusive. If other states like Nevada wanted to join, then there'd have to be some mechanism where you'd have representatives from those other states uh, included on the board. Yeah. Some of the more sort of political issues you mentioned for the merging of, of these ISOs, uh, are very similar to getting an area to join an ISO in the first place. Mm -hmm. What are, do you think there's any prospect of some of the tools that FERC has had and used to encourage areas to join ISOs? Can it use any of those tools to get any of these ISOs to dispatch in common? Um, possibly. I mean, again, certainly it, it could provide for some higher level of incentives i think it certainly has the authority to do that if if there were uh, uh demonstrated uh by that that cross-border uh dispatching uh, efficiencies which i think it, it it 
could demonstrate. I know on the on the New York PGM border there was huge efficiencies by, and, and they are doing some cross border dispatching there. And I think actually between New England and, and ISO is, and New yep. York as well, they're doing cross border dispatching, and and there was tremendous savings because of that. Um, even though the you know it, it didn't bleed into the governance of the two in any way. Um, so I think FERC does have some tools, and the other tools certainly are come from the states. I mean, the state commissions have great authority to be able to force these regions to become more uh, efficient by looking at potentially uh, better collaborating or as actually physically joining uh, with other regions. Great. And then uh, last, I want to talk a bit about distributed generation. You, mm -hmm. You've done uh, a bunch of work on that and um, was hoping you could talk a bit about uh, sort of what you see going forward in uh, distributed renewables. Well, I think it's just going to continue to explode. I mean, even though there's been somewhat of a slowdown in the last year here for a number of reasons, we've had uh, the solar trade tariffs, uh, there's been other um, issues uh, with respect to uh, state regulatory um, impediments, and um, and there's been some some changes in the industry structure as well. One of the largest um, solar developers, residential and commercial solar developers, actually I, I worked for for a year. I was a chief policy officer for Solar City. They were acquired by Tesla, and that acquisition resulted in a, in a change in uh, the the business uh, footprint of Solar City and how Solar City uh, sold uh, and marketed. And because of that, uh, their uh, business uh, has been scaled back significantly, and, and they were the largest one. So a number of things have happened. There's also a sort of ongoing wars by the um, the utility industry against uh, rooftop solar um, and so that that continues to inhibit there's a, a big fight right now in Kentucky going on but with all that said you can't stop consumers from wanting to control their own destiny with respect to energy and because of that both residential consumers and commercial industrial consumers uh, continue to want to have the ability to um, have that uh, control and have that association. In addition, consumers, uh, poll-wise, it's demonstrated, are all um, out uh, for uh, um, expanding renewable generation. Uh, polls show you know 80 plus percent of consumers want renewable generation expanded. So it's it's kind of a wave that you can't stop. Um, I've got a client, for example, who actually is putting utility scale wind turbines at uh, industrial manufacturing sites in Ohio because those manufacturers like Whirlpool and others want to have those turbines next to their site. And that's not the most ideal location from a, a wind resource regime. But from the standpoint of the um, particular uh, manufacturer, it's something that they can identify with, they can show them and tell their customers about. And it turns out it's also cost effective. They're also actually 
um, making money on, on, on these turbines uh, because the prices are so low. So you've got this combination of a huge consumer push on the one side, and the other side you've got prices continuing to come down uh, despite the trade tariffs. I understand that uh, those tariffs will have the effect of those tariffs will be completely negated by price reductions within a year. And so um, I think that's going to continue to um, be a driver for more and more distributed generation. And then on top of that, what you're seeing is not uh, just the distributed generation, but you're seeing the combination of resources at the distributed level, which include the generation, the storage, the controls with communications to do load control, demand response on the system, and then those entire aggregate systems having the ability now to participate up in wholesale markets and provide wholesale products uh, into markets and therefore be compensated for doing that. I, I wrote a paper about um, what we call uh, alternative transmission solutions that talks about aggregations of distributed resources and using those instead of building new transmission. And that's one thing that actually FERC encouraged in the Order 1000, the transmission planning order that I helped uh, get out of FERC when I was, was there. Um, well, who pays for the grid then? Well, everybody who uses it will continue to pay for it. Uh, even if there is uh, individuals who are primarily uh, utilizing resources on site that are distributed resources, those resources will best be most economic if they are continued to be connected to the grid and used not so much to provide for services and energy resources coming into that facility, but instead the grid being used to have those aggregated facilities provide services going out to offset the cost of paying for those things because you know if you can use those if you can use a battery or a rooftop solar system with an advanced inverter or um, controls for controlling load within the facility and the aggregation of those to ultimately offset your costs by providing energy capacity ancillary services out to the grid, it's going to be much more cost effective for you to have that thing to be primarily serving you, but being partially paid for by other consumers who need those services as well. So, those, so that grid out there will serve that two-way purpose for those people who choose not to do that or don't have a full suite of things to do do all those services for them and need to take services off the grid. And it will also provide service to those entities who want to put the services out from the resources that they have internally within their own facilities. And is there a particular way that you see that utilities are going to have to change their business model to, to accommodate um, these new services, technologies, um, Oh, it, it, it will entirely change because all those services that I talk about will all be competitive. So there will no, not any longer be quote-unquote utilities. The utility will be, in essence, as they are at the, at the uh, bulk power transmission level now, they'll be owners of, of, of the grid of wires, and they'll maintain those wires, but they won't operate them. They won't plan on them, 
and they won't determine who interconnects to them or how the services go across them or what rules, market rules are used to provide for payment and compensation for those services. All that I believe will be done by an independent entity, both at the transmission levels that now is, in fact that's what an ISO does, but I believe we should and will have at the distribution level a similar uh, functionary called an IDSO, and I wrote a paper about that, Independent Distribution System Operator, that will operate those distribution uh, grid assets the same way the ISOs operate the transmission assets and operate them independently on a nonprofit basis for the good of everybody, but there can be underlying for-profit owners of those assets, just like there are at the ISO uh, bulk power level, that can continue to uh, operate, or not operate, continue to own and maintain those assets um, if, the, if we want to. So is what you just described just the effectively the death of the modern utility? Yes. Yeah. It is. I mean, it, yeah, it has to go that way because efficiencies, economic efficiencies will drive it that way. And, and economic efficiencies are driving it that way at the wholesale level. And I believe they're continuing to drive it that way at the retail level. And you can look at states like Texas that are fully deregulated at the retail level. They don't have independent operators at the distribution level yet. Uh, but you, you do have a state commission that oversees that operation. And, and um, I think at one point they're going to realize that it would make much more sense to have an independent entity who's ultimately operating those systems. So I understand that uh, perhaps uh, some folks listening from utilities would not be thrilled to hear that. What do you anticipate their, um, if not response, like what, what is their next move? If this is sort of the direction well, that the economics of it are moving they ha in. They have to decide what they want to be when the system evolves. So do they want to continue to be the owners of the underlying wires and just own and maintain them? They can do that. A lot of them do that now at the transmission level. Sure. You know, all of the uh, most all of the IOUs who have distribution assets that are in ISOs also have transmission assets and they've turned them over to an independent operator to operate them and to plan on them and to provide uh, the uh, compensation allocation uh, and and determine integration interconnection rules and market rules etc. That's all done independently. So they've done it. PG&E and uh, you know the um, big utilities in in the east, uh, PSEG and everybody else, ConEd and and ComEd. They've all you know turned over their lines, their FERC jurisdictional lines, to independent operators. Um, where they have those lines that are w within an ISO footprint. So they can decide to do that, if that's a business model they want to do, or they can decide to provide services to customers, but if they want to do that to the retail customer, they're going to have to be uh, competitors. They're going to have to be non-monopoly competitors providing competitive services. And those competitive services are everything that can be competitive, including metering and billing and all that can be competitive for sure um, you know and so uh, especially because of all the digital technology we have now you know it's so simple to do those things and so uh, that will have to all transform and whether or not existing investor owned vertically integrated utility who sees that coming wants to move to do that you know that's going to be up to them there are some who are 
deciding to go those directions. Uh, there's a lot of others who are resisting it. Terrific. All right. Chairman Wellinghoff, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this has been great. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Special thanks to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast for assisting with this recording. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.